Memorabilia. Collecting sounds with Andy Volta. When I was a kid, I mean, the pressures of youth culture and the idea of having an older brother or sister, it just didn't exist for me. So there was no pressure to be into music and there was no uh, barometer of what was cool with music. But I knew that I liked certain parts of records and there were certain parts of records that I didn't like. And I was, um, I distinctly remember not being allowed to touch a record player from a very early age because it was such a delicate thing. But within a short amount of time, and it must have been as when cassettes came into fashion in the late 70s, it's almost like the record player got taken away and put in a cupboard, at which point I was allowed to play with it. So um, my dad was, um, he had a flat which he rented out and one of the tenants left one summer and left all his belongings behind. And he left about 50 records, um, seven inches. And I asked my father if I could have the records just to play with, because I'd never been allowed to touch a record player until this point. And he said, yeah. So I instantly started drawing on them and putting tape on them and glue and stuff and playing them. I was fascinated with playing them backwards. And um, I suppose this is where my interest in sort of like the mechanics of music started. When hip-hop came about, it instantly felt like a mistake to me. And I could understand this was sort of like non-musicians making music, and I found it really interesting. So um, I asked my dad, who was very attentive to my questions, and, you know, he told me in a very pragmatic way that how this music that I was sort of getting interested in was made, and he explained about loops. But he told me... um, the kind of wrong information really. He told me that all that kind of music was made within compact cassettes and he, he physically showed me how to make it. So he taught me how to unscrew a cassette and sellotape it back together. So from a really early age, I was kind of making my own music. Like I'm talking like from when I was nine, 10 years old, you know, I was already sort of manipulating records and putting tapes back together and just making silly noises and playing your voice backwards and nothing's really changed since then I still do it now it's just I've always been interested in finding strange sounds and it still really is in the realms of pop music I mean you can apply any genre to it or any sort of artistic or geographical context to it but at the end of the day it is all pop music that I come back to and I, I suppose now I mean, for the last 20 years, I've had a profound love in foreign language pop or possibly an anti-English language policy, which has taken me to the other ends of the world to find music and still kept this love for pop music, which is easy to fall out with when you get tired of lyrics and language and band names and terrible songs, you know. But you can still keep in mind that the voices and instruments still keep that love of pop music strong. And that's what I try to do by exploring the world and traveling and buying as many records as possible. But it's very, 
it's a very non-intellectual outlook that I have on the whole thing, you know. It's a seek and gather thing and it's definitely archival, but you know, it still harks back to the formative, childish loves and sensibilities that I had when I was an only child. say I wanted to own the sources I just wanted to hear them and in the late 80s and the early 90s before the internet really kicked in the only way to hear stuff was to own it so <laughs> it wasn't I couldn't go to my friend's house because they'd be listening to by that stage when I was leaving school they were listening to the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses like people weren't listening to I don't know New York hip hop or whatever, you know. So it, you had to buy stuff, really. I've never really seen myself, I'd be the world's worst librarian, you know. I'm very into the human element and the physical element of amassing records. I don't even like using the term record collecting because, you know, condition has never really meant much to me at all. I mean, I love buying French records. I mean, that's one of my earliest loves in buying foreign pop music. But one of the greatest things about French records is they've always got writing on. You know, it's hard to find a, a French EP without a message being written on to a loved one or a member of the family or as a birthday present, and I find that as almost as um, as fascinating as what's on the record. You know, when handmade records or just pictures that people have drawn, I've always loved that. You know, I, I always pick the analogy of, you know, the Austrian architect Hundertwasser. He was making... Um, one of the easiest ways to collect his artwork was to buy the postage stamps that he, he started making and they became very collectible and he was interviewed once and they said um they asked him about people collecting unfranked sheets of his postage stamps and they asked him how he felt about it and he goes uh, he, th he thought it was a travesty and he goes a stamp is there for a purpose and if it's not been licked stuck and sent to somebody with, via hate or love or other emotions, it ceases to be a stamp. And I think that's the same with a record. If it's not been played, it's not been um, digested or, or romanticised by someone or loved or hated, it ceases to be a record. I've got a lot of records from when I was a kid which I ruined with bad styluses or just, you know, or just um, didn't look after and they've got scratches on or skips and that's how I when I hear them records nowadays on the radio and they haven't got the same skip in the same place I'm confused but I suppose it's the same way and the people hear different lyrics in music and make their own interpretation then when somebody else tells them what the real words say they're really disappointed because they've always heard something in the same way so I suppose um from what I'm saying nostalgia obviously um is a big part of what I do as well or why I love old objects I'm really excited when I get a mint record, you know, like anyone, but only because it's a luxury. I suppose it starts creeping into a different side of my brain, really. I've never been a fan of luxury items, you know. I don't buy luxury electronics or luxury furnishing or clothes, so, you know, why would I buy luxury music? I mean, granted, I've spent ridiculous amounts of money on single 
copies of records, but I think it's a, a fascination, really, and it's certainly not something that I'm proud of. I don't draw the line between materialism and archaeology. I just don't think they make, they're not good bedfellows. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I'm surprised when people do couple them together, but I find them to be totally alien from each other. there was another phrase for record collecting. I'm really flattered when somebody says that I've got really good taste in music and it really touches me because that happens more and more and it seems that people understand probably I've got more a wider sense and a wider taste in music now where I'm, I'm reaching more people but I've never been flattered by anyone that said that I've got a really good record collection or you should go and see the size of Andy's record collection that means nothing to me I mean to be honest that's it is kind of embarrassing you know I mean you know, I've got a family, two young children, it's like, you know, it doesn't make for good space, it doesn't make for good living having lots of records, and I'm not an organised person in any way, you know, so it's um, it's terribly filed, it's, you know, it's sometimes... Nowadays, I know if I need to find a certain record, I've got to put two hours aside to look for it, because I can't find it, you know, it's totally impractical. Uh, sadly, that is the way with the kind of music myself and Doug and Finders Keepers specialise in. These are lost records and they don't yet exist in any digital form, so there's no alternative really. But two hours spent looking for a record in my house is no different from travelling to Turkey or Australia looking for an original copy of a record. You know, that's just, you know, it's something that I think it's hugely impractical, but it's spurred by, you know, a love and a faith, and I suppose it's just part of my life now so <laughs> but i don't particularly recommend that lifestyle i wouldn't recommend it to my children because you know it's um things change so it's, it's an affliction it is an affliction when you do start to see yourself as a collector for me it, it wasn't a good time and i always think i think habitually i always steer the other way so when i see myself focusing too much on one style of music you know i'll i will sort of head the other way i always head the other way when there's musical trends you know when you start seeing records from a certain country or a certain part of the world reaching huge prices on ebay and you can tell that a lot of people are sort of um following the same trail i immediately go the other way you know but that's something that's been with me my entire life I think it really just comes down simply to hearing things that I've never ever heard before and then sharing them, hearing sounds I've never heard before or rhythms or just styles of music but still, you know, I don't like to over-intellectualise it, it's still within the realms of pop music, you know, I mean, I do spend a lot of time looking for new age records and I do spend a lot of time looking for, looking for minimal synth records and I do look for records from art galleries and stuff but for me they're just parts of a bigger picture that influenced that went on to influence other musicians that went on to influence the pop records that they made so i suppose uh, i'm just looking for new sound and trying to share new sound and i suppose finders keepers as a theory has been with me for a long time now and it's been with me and doug for a long time and um 
we can almost justify it now you know there's a lifeline there and there's a reason to do it you know and it's uh, startling when these loops start happening and these connections appear I mean every now and then I do I present shows with a DJ called Stuart McConey and last week we did a show based on the films of Donald Pleasance and this is a music show but at one point sometime during last year I, I realised that every film starring Donald Pleasance featured music from my favourite composers so it's Christoph Comida from Poland, Goblin from Italy, Will Malone from the UK, John Carpenter you know and Donald Pleasance made that bizarre loop that thread between all those artists and at which point you just think oh wow I've actually justified something I've made a, a loop in my head which 20 years ago was just totally erratic and didn't make any sense at all I think as a whole my record collection doesn't make any sense and there's probably key records which you could take out and the whole continuity collapses but it might just be that one record in there that holds the entire collection together you know there might be one record there and 30 other records that influenced it and that makes the full connection but the beauty is if I stop buying records tomorrow and spent the next 20 years actually going back and listening and making connections within my own library I'd still learn as much and discover as many new things as I did within the previous 20 years so I think my own record collection's probably got the most bizarre filing system ever because only I understand it really. Every now and then I'll probably organise like Eastern European music into a couple of shelves or folk music into a couple of shelves but then they start infecting each other and then, you know, so they, they don't stay like that for, for long really. There's, you know, like I've got a lot of jazz records. I must have like, you know... I've got hundreds of jazz records, but there's not a jazz shelf. The jazz just goes in <laughs> anyway, you know. So, so if you ever want to find a jazz record in my house, it's going to be hard work because it's probably going to be next to a loner country record or a Scientology record. But I suppose it's personal. I mean, it is an archive, and it does work for me every single day of my life, you know. I suppose the realisation of putting something in alphabetical order and organising it proves that you're becoming obsessed with it, I suppose. I would never advocate, you know, obviously it'd be stupid to advocate mistreating your records, but all I'm saying is that I don't obsess over finding mint copies of records or filing stuff in a way that is, uh, to me... That uses the opposite side of your brain, and I really can't understand how, how the two connect, really. You know, it's sort of like um, people who find books or paintings, then they hand them over to a librarian or a curator to put them in a context, and, um, you know. But then, I suppose, Finders Keepers Records is an organised library. So I suppose by setting up a record label and writing sleeve notes is probably the ultimate way that I've actually turned a, a very messy record collection into something which is tangible and organised. And that comes with the help, the huge help and relationship that I have with Doug Shipson and the huge help of an audience who understands them and the record buying market that understands and trusts 
why we habitually do what we do. And I think once it's once that's been organised, given catalogue numbers and put out into the and shared with the public or uh, record buying communities, then it does become a library, a public library. So, yeah, I think it's more important for my records to represent a public archive at this point than a personal materialistic collection, which I dote over, which obviously with a beloved family, I don't need that in my life. I'm not trying to fill a void, but it doesn't stop me from being hugely obsessive about noise. Records to me are valuable for different reasons, but I suppose um, my most valuable records will just coincidentally be quite rare. So I think, you know, the soundtrack to Belladonna of Sadness, a Japanese animation film, is like a really special record for me. Because it's not the kind of record you can see in anyone else's house, really. So it's just, um, you know, and I love the film and I, it just ticks all the boxes, really. It's like really heavy Japanese side to this proto manga thing and it's got a brilliant it's to do with a famous French witchcraft story and it's very psychedelic and it sort of ticks a lot of boxes. Sack soundtrack is the same, a British only 45, which was, you know, basically is the tangible unison of Christoph Kamida, Roman Polanski and Jan Lenicia. So you've got the one of the best graphic Polish graphic designers in the world doing the sleeve, the best Polish composer doing the music, and arguably the best Polish film director. So and it's uh, it does uh, encapsulate it does encompass um, that early movement that came from the Woods Film School and stuff. So it's like a microcosm in time, really. Which, due to communism, you never saw a full picture. You never saw the full thing. So that's uh, it's almost like a trophy record for that movement, and it's incredibly rare and only came out in the UK. So it never came out in Poland. So it's a, a bizarre little misplaced item in time. Yeah, it's all about context of music and recontextualising music. And I think in my earliest influences, when I was buying original samples that were used on hip hop records, it was uh, it was that was all to do with context. I might have had no love at all for a Jefferson Airplane record or a record by you know a jazz record on CTI. You know, they meant nothing to me. But in the context of a Tribe Called Quest record or a Ultra Magnetic MCs record, it meant the world. And I think um, I do love a lot of Polish records because the sleeves were designed by, you know, people like Jerzy Flizak or a whole generation of Polish poster designers. I mean, you know, that's 
things have got a different life, you know, that, yeah. When the phenomena of library records became a trend, I found it very difficult to uh, fall in love with that trend because there was no uh, context. It was custom built, you know, music for speedboats or music for decorating or music for war. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. It was hard for me to get excited about that kind of thing. Uh, that's changed now, but only through being in love with European horror, or, you know... See, Spanish horror films have taught me to love library records, so it's sort of like a backdoor entrance. And the fact the covers are just so mundane and stripped down is even more of the joy, because it's almost like a secret society. But the actual custom-built attitude to making music has never excited me, and it's sadly why I've probably missed out on dance music as a culture because I've never been interested in house music or dance music at all. I wish that I had, but because it, from the outset it was custom built in order to make people dance, that was the main objective. It it didn't work for me. I, I much prefer to find records which were made for another reason, taken out of context and work in a different way. So something that was made for a music that was made for a film, actually ends up on the dance floor or, you know, a terrible piece of music just ends up having one of the best record sleeves in the world made by a graphic designer who also did the sleeve for another record for one of the best records ever made or someone's awkward second album, which is terrible compared to the first one, but still it's, you know, it's difficult to draw these patterns of context, you know, which is why a record collection is really personal. music's one of those things which doesn't rely on a function you know for me personally the best kind of record fails you know I do celebrate failure in pop music I mean music that was not successful because of politics or wasn't successful because it was ahead of its time or wasn't successful because you know there's a number of reasons why a record might not be successful and then you you know if you look at records from Eastern Europe which were trying to emulate what was happening in the West through a sort of very narrow, a narrow genuine window. They basically become fantasy record of, they can only imagine, you'll hear it, you'll hear a Polish record, which is by a musician who's heard a little bit of fuzz guitar on German radio and then done an entire album which is dedicated to fuzz guitar and they've really gone over the top because they've overcompensated just on a small piece of imagination and they've totally got it wrong and I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing like Korean records which have done absolutely everything they can in the power to sound like ACDC but they just sound like the puniest you know like um, background music or um, or almost like uh, lift music or um, outsider music and I think that's fascinating and that's where when a record takes on its own life and becomes something totally different I think that's just a wonderful thing and I suppose that's one common thread through my own record collection records like that really float my boat when people get it wrong 
they actually get it really right, you know, and uh, that's a very wonderful thing. I mean, everything on Finders Keepers seems to me in one way or another out of the ordinary. I mean, we're spending a lot of time now putting records out from a guy called Gary Sloan who um, came from Alaska and um, there's a very small sort of blues scene in Alaska making private press records because they were finding it geographically difficult to compete with the major music industry. But this group of Alaskan blues musicians got funding from the Alaskan Pipeline and could choose any instruments they wanted to create a studio. So they just bought tons of synthesizers and the leader of this band was a guy called Gary Sloan and he specialised in the electronic harmonica. And for us to have like, uh, for something to exist, a network of people in Alaska doing electronic blues records with an electronic harmonica and some of the best synths in the world, being equally influenced by Brownie McGee and at the same time Tangerine Dream and being so geographically out there is something which is hugely fascinating to me, especially when it's a self-funded initiative. You know, I think it's just something which can only exist on the outskirts of anything that resembles an American music industry. And I think that's, that's great, really. from Belgium, you know, like the Yamasuki record we did, which was basically a kid's chorus making up a fake approximation of Japanese language for the, under the name Yamasuki, which was a mixture between Yamaha and Suzuki. It's like almost like a borderline racist record, but just fascinating that that kind of thing could exist. I mean, and these are just one or two of the first records that we bought out on Finders Keepers. So I suppose, you know, that was almost like our modus operandi in just one or two releases, really, and we've never really looked back. But, you know, these records are masters of their own um, destiny, you know, because they make these crazy misguided decisions, which are just well ahead of the time, you know, more creative than pretty much all of the pop music that you see that come out today. It must have been a fantastic world to live in with the dawn of the uh, feature-length LP. <laughs> I mean, Bollywood music is, as much as people think it's maligned, and for years people have been paying big money for rare Bollywood records, but arguably hardly any Bollywood records are rare. I mean, it's as big as Hollywood almost. It's, like, huge. I mean, there's some rare Bollywood 45s knocking about, but then Lollywood is, like, the poorest sister of 
Bollywood, and that's the Lahore film industry. Um, and that is uh, basically instead of a 60-piece orchestra and the best best synths, you'd have the cheapest synths and like a four-piece orchestra and then a few uh, sort of um, homemade studio trickery and various resampling elements going on. Uh, which makes for amazing records, which sound a lot rawer, so it's almost like the punk version of Bollywood. Hollywood, which can't even afford a four-piece band, so it's usually a one-piece band, which is nine out of ten times Iliarage, and uh, you're almost verging on outsider music now. So he's using samples from the 40s, mixing them with DH7, DX7 bass lines and drum machines and anything he can to keep the cost down, you know, and uh, generally working on four different soundtracks at the same time. So it was just like crazy sort of um, one-man power cut so uh, yeah but it's amazing uh, the difference across the scale from big bucks Bollywood to closed circuit Hollywood <laughs> I've never understood or agreed with the notion that an expensive record denotes quality because it nine out of ten times it really doesn't but then i suppose that's the perception of quality which can be um thrown to question it's how you perceive quality i suppose is a key factor in that statement when a record becomes really expensive and collectible it usually is caught up in some sort of trend and by which point you can pretty much guarantee that a lot of people have already heard it. Price never denotes quality and really an expensive record is usually a well-furrowed uh, field. There's times where I'll only buy records which I don't know what they are. That's pretty much a rule of thumb for me. I mean, there's a lot of DJs and collectors and record buyers who have predetermined want lists and, you know, they're buying records which they already know and love and just need original copies. But I'd say at times up to 70% of the records I buy I've never heard before. It's only with travel where I get to spend a lot more time in record shops searching for things and listening to things. I uh, don't have to take blind gambles, but I'll always look for the record which I don't know anything about. 
And if you spend a lot of time in Europe buying records, you build a decent knowledge of how to buy records and repetition and, you know, and identifying certain elements. But if there's something which leaves you totally stumped, I mean, that's the number one record for me. Because then you've got a life ahead of you. Then you've got the hunt begins and, you know, that's when you have to start, that's where you have to go through phone books or you have to start tracking down members of families and stuff like that and it's uh, that is the beautiful thing that's where the hunt starts you know when I see a record which I hear I fall in love with and I recognise nothing about you know or I don't know any of the names on there it means it could be from a totally different planet well to me that's where a record really starts to pay that's where it's the gift that keeps on giving because you know you've got 20 years you've got years of knowledge to accumulate in front of you that's where the hunt begins and it's it's an amazing it's that, that's uh, that's one of the the best things you can buy in a record shop The hardest part about getting rid of records is you kind of forget what you've got rid of. So you can spend a lot of time looking for something and then realise that you actually got rid of it. And you'll always want those records back. There'll always be something in there. One of the worst things I ever did was got I got rid of a lot of UK hip-hop when I was like... Um, Probably like uh, the early 90s, when all I really wanted to buy was psych records. I just wanted to buy prog. Psych. It was a really exciting time. When I discovered white music, it was a ridiculous time. You know, when people started sampling, you know, Frank Zappa and stuff like that, I, I was just like, the world exploded to me because I knew there was these records in England and Europe, which you could, you know, it wasn't all about America anymore. So I needed, like, you know, as much like uh, the biggest facility possible to buy as many records. So I got rid of so many sort of UK hip hop and it, it, it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done, you know. But when you get rid of stuff, you've just got to consider whether you're going to see it again. I mean, I don't have any Beatles records. I don't have any Velvet Underground records. And Velvet Underground are one of my favourite bands. But at this given moment, I don't even think I've got a Velvet Underground record in the house. So that's... That's kind of weird. But, you know, I've been known to move on a can record because I know I can get it again, or a fall record because I know I can get it again. And they're my favourite bands, you know. I'm a completist, a can completist, a fall completist, a Serge Gansborg completist. But, you know, if someone really needs one of those records at me, you know, I can probably get it again, you know. So, uh, And then I've got some terrible, unlistenable records which I don't even really like, but... I'm not going to let it go because I don't think I'll ever get it again. So, you know, there's a rainy day for all that stuff and it's not going anywhere. Digging in my own house is nowadays more fun than almost as much fun as digging in a remote shop in Sweden or Turkey. Because there's a lot of stuff there and your taste just changed throughout your life. And there's records which I've not listened to for 10 years and I've gone back and discovered new things on them. So that's a real joy. That sort of 
anyone who's been re collecting records for over 15 years, you know, they'll they'll agree that that's one of the biggest joys in life to find something new in your own collection. That's an amazing thing. That's like full circle. You've kind of like uh, achieved something when that happens. I only buy records when I'm abroad, so um, sadly I don't buy many records in the UK just because when I'm at home I'm first and foremost a father. Any spare time I've got really goes to my family and providing for my family, but downtime when I'm abroad is always records. I don't process competition well in any way, you know. I live rurally and get enough exercise walking about, but I don't play sport. I never have done. Competition doesn't really come into my life. So um, and I think the best way to combat that is just to be doing, do something different from everyone else. So even within the realms of record digging, competition really doesn't come into it much at all because I know that I'm usually digging for something totally different from anyone else. I remember when I was like 17, 18, we used to go to London buying records and uh, me and my friend used to take different routes running through a market to get to the record store quicker than the other person because you were looking for potentially the same thing. But that doesn't even exist anymore. My friend Boney, Mark Rathbone, he's one of my favourite record collectors in the world and he taught me everything I knew. I mean, you know, he was... Um, that was the first time I ever saw a real record collection which looked like uh, something you'd see in a library or behind John Peel when he was on TV. This was the, uh, like I was thinking, wow, that's so many, so many records. We grew up together and we've bought records together and we've got the same ideas about music and everything, but we buy totally different records. There's no competition at all between us. You know, we, we kind of like don't really even talk about records that much anymore because we've just gone we've gone from being the same egg to being two totally different characters you know even though we're buying the same physical form it's just totally different and i think that's the same with everyone around me the key to being a good collector or a good dj is to have your own set and i think that's absolutely paramount in this day and age you know if you're going to be a club dj you need to have your own sound. You need to. It's just, yeah, I think it's the number one rule. And uh, luckily, everyone around me agrees with that notion. We, none of us play each other's records, you know. We respect that. You know, if you do a mix, never. It's always your discoveries as much as possible, you know. Um, if I couldn't say that, you know, over 60, 70 to 80% of records are things that, which have discovered on a mix it's not really worth doing it you know and i think that's really important but it's achievable as well so for that reason again there's no competition really any record diggers which i truly respect therefore worry about they're buying different stuff everybody's buying different stuff you know so there's a lot of music out there i mean there's a lot of stuff out there this could go on for Specialising in the 60s and 70s alone, this could go on for another 100 years. 
take that to the 80s and the 90s well you know this could go on forever and there's no question of that you know which is uh why it's great the term record collector has to change there's so many different versions of a record collector now everyone i grew up with the same ethos as me never really had condition in mind or archiving in mind or any predetermined context in mind they were all trying to find something different something new which didn't fit in and create their own journey through music the main unifying advantage was that we listened to music in a disposable way and took what you needed. And I think that is probably the Crate Diggers manifesto, which obviously came from finding samples and finding loops. You know, you'd happily buy a record just for four bars of music. And there's a culture of people that do that. By the same token, in that same session, in that same record shop, they'll buy a Czech record, a Brazilian record and a Polish record or a Russian record next to a Hungarian record within that one bag they'll have civil war you know from a political point of view and it's a beautiful way that it bridges cultures that disposable mentality has probably created this truly open-minded culture which doesn't apply to your classical record digger it's very organized completist and i know having sold records traded records bought records and lived with records for 20 years that there's a lot of people out there that buy records and don't listen to them they buy mint copies put them on the shelves in alphabetical order and they don't even listen to them that happens it's huge you know and there's also soundtrack collectors out there who never watch films it's an anomaly in itself, you know. Why do people do these things? In the same way that the stamp collectors who never post letters. It's just, you know, people buy things and do things for different reasons. And I think that's beautiful in its absurdity. But there definitely is a new beast out there. And um, that's a beast that I often like to shake hands with. <laughs> I am and the kind of person that walks into a record shop and doesn't really know where to go, like I did when I was 14. Where you'd walk into a record shop and be a bit embarrassed and think, uh. but now it, it's just there's so much that I want, you know. There's not a certain area in the record shop I need to protect anymore. So I tend to head for, like, world music because that genre in itself is so dysfunctional. I mean, it just, you know, it doesn't... Once upon a time, it just meant African music but now people just throw anything that they don't know what it is in the world music section so it's always a good place to head for because there could be anything in there because it's almost like the uh, lunatics asylum of the record shop you know it's just like so but it's amazing because otherwise it would be kraut rock I'd always head for the kraut rock but when you go to big fairs like Utrecht I never go to the kraut rock because there's so much kraut rock there it's unbelievable you know you can you can set your watch by 
Krautrock. Krautrock's the most well-documented musical genre there is there, but with Germanic efficiency as its ongoing manifesto, it's like, you know, it's the most organised form of way-out music ever. So at a record fair, I'd never go there. But for some reason, as like a robot, I'll always head for the Krautrock section. But I'll never, ever know what I'm going to come come out with. Ever. I suppose soundtracks is just something habitually which I always sort of gravitate towards, but I don't know why. I suppose it's a contentious subject, but I think I'm right in saying that truly experimental music can't really exist anymore just for the fact that modern technology, you can create any predetermined sound you want now. It's just if you want something to sound like a dog barking or you want to emulate any given sound, you can do by the same token, if you do something wrong, you can record over it straight away. Technology is so advanced that it's almost impossible to make experimental music or experimental noise because people are perfectionists and they correct themselves all the time. Technology corrects music. So you hardly find any genuine experimental music anymore. But if you're harking back to music from the 60s and the 70s or the 50s or the 40s, the restrictions in technology was such an amazing haven for experimental music. I mean, them restrictions, you know, that that was the basis of experimental music. So you'll always need to look to the past, really, I think, to find um, uninhibited sounds, which is what you want in a record. You want people who are, aren't afraid to make mistakes on a record. That's what you want. That's what you're looking for, you know. But people don't really make mistakes in modern music anymore. I'm a fan with a lot of respect for my heroes and I truly want to meet these people and find out the bigger picture. And that takes a physical and social interaction, which um, doesn't really exist as much anymore you know if you're you can do a lot sitting at a computer you can compile a lot of records you can find a lot of records you can do a lot of digging from an armchair you know all you really need now to be a champion crate digger is a credit card and a computer it all comes down to what you want to achieve you know but arguably it's already taken someone to put that sound clip on the computer and clean that record and, you know, sort out some sort of PayPal or credit card facility that allows you to buy that record. That's a far cry from getting on a plane and driving out to a, a remote village and meeting um, an artist and finding out what they've got in their attic or the failed record that never came out. So, and I think the physical side will always outweigh the um, technology. Mm -hmm. 
will use any tool in order to find records you know it's like uh, like I say it's uh, it's an affliction and you know an addiction and you will use I'll use anything you know there's a lot of people that don't use eBay and discogs and stuff and they wear that on their sleeve and they're cutting off their noses to spite their face you know I'd never start with the computer start as a social interaction you know I've met many musicians old musicians over the years who can't find copies of their original records who've told me stuff told me things that they were involved in and that they did and then i come back home and i find their record on ebay and that's a record that they didn't even have in their own collection but it was the information that came from the artist in the first place it was the human information that started so you know i think people have got the rules the wrong way around you know but it's the same with graphic design or anything you know i never or filmmaking, you don't start with a computer. You start with a million and one things, and, you know, that might be the the last... Uh, a computer and a technology is a fantastic tool, and I would never advise my children or my family or people that mean anything to me to take the path that I've taken, because it's uh, a long and winding road. I mean, I agree with um, the way my kids listen to music, and I don't agree that vinyl is better than digital. It's just what matters to me, you know, and I like that physicality. And people who make that distinction are the kind of people who can hear dog whistles. And I can't, my ears aren't that trained to spot the difference between the sound of a, a record and um, a, a digital copy, or to at least to differentiate any notable snobbery. I think you'll find a lot of record collectors are competitive. And I think that's something which is more akin to male nature. You could take it back to the primeval rhythms of life and refer to the hunt and gather mentality. But record collecting is a new phenomena. You know, it's only really 50, 60, 70 years old at the most. And for a majority of that time, you know, we've lived in chauvinistic times. I mean, old school record shop owners are generally pretty chauvinistic my wife isn't particularly well treated when she goes into obscure record shops in the middle of nowhere and i know when girls ask for records at record fairs there's some sort of teenage mirth that goes on by some fat old balding collector the other side of the stall so it's probably not a very inviting place but it's almost like a barren, lawless plain, the record collecting world. It's not a very nice place to be anyway. I mean, you get these sort of new generation of record collectors now who only really know about um, forums and buying online. You take these dudes out into like the old record shops and 
they're terrified at the amount of weirdos that are involved in the record collection world. And it's the record collecting world. I mean, you know, you want to take these people out into the VHS collecting world. That's a whole different ball game, you know. The people that hang around film fairs. I mean, that's where the true weirdos live, you know. But it's like um, you don't kind of see that on the internet. You don't see that world. I've, I've you know, there's certain peers that I've got now who are serious record collectors that, you know. I consider my closest friends who look with me and they've kind of got sort of like a bleak attitude and are a bit weird and a bit argumentative. And some of my younger friends go, Jesus, what's wrong with that dude? You know, why is he so uptight? And I say, listen, you should have been out in this field 20 years ago because they used to, record collectors used to be a lot weirder then. You know, the true prog heads that used to go out, you know, camp out on car boot sale fields like in the late 80s, they were quite scary dudes. So... It's not a particularly hygienic place. Record shops are a bit smelly. There's a, a million reasons. Record collector dudes, you could probably find a demographic of um, record shop owners who still live at home with their mum and have never had a girlfriend and have this terrible defence mechanism which makes it not a very inviting feminine environment. It's the phenomena is too young to tell and it's already dying so <laughs> you'll never know i suppose it's uh maybe it's, it won't change <laughs>